Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Kathy Lett is a celebrated and outspoken comic writer who takes on serious current issues and was recently awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Wollongong. So excited by it that it actually took her three weeks to pry the hat off her head. She is one of the pioneering voices of contemporary feminism. And you'll hear throughout this conversation that she is still rallying the troops in this regard. In fact, her call is for women to be given the reins of the world for a stint and let's just see how it works out. Having written 14 bestsellers published across 17 languages, from her first book, Puberty Blues, to her latest book, Best Laid Plans, Kathy unpacks the power of words and why really they have become the tool of her trade. Her current novel is about a mum navigating the world of love and sex with her teenage autistic son. A lot of what's in the novel actually reflects Kathy's own journey with her son Jules and an experience that she really didn't come out about until Jules was the age of 21. So now she talks about what that world was like and the pathway to really seeing him being an extraordinary human being. This is a powerhouse episode with a powerhouse woman. So sit back and enjoy Dr. Kathy Lett. So Kathy, fantastic to have you in the studio, but I am actually realised that I'm contractually obligated to call you Dr. Lett. Correct. <laughs> yes, I got my honorary doctorate from Wollongong University Congrats. last week. Congratulations. Thank what you. was that like for you? Yes, I want a lot more respect from you now. Yes, well I am down on bended <laughs> knee. <laughs> It was great because I left school so young. You know, I always joke that I left school at 16 and the only examination I've ever passed is my cervical smear test. But it's true, you know, and my mother was so devastated because she was a principal, school principal, and I was a straight-A student and she was absolutely mortified when I ran away from home to follow Spike Milligan. I hitchhiked around the country following Spike Milligan. I mean, Did other... you face her with that news or did you just run? Um, I... I think I faced her and then ran. <laughs> so for, to, to get an honorary doctorate the other day and have my mum there and my sisters there was really, really exciting. Obviously, I've graduated with um, distinction from the school of hard knocks, you know, but it was really something. And, in fact, I was so chuffed I welded the the hat, the academic hat, to my cranium. Because when they rang me and said, we want to know your measurements for your of your head for the hat, size. They said, how, so what, how big is your head? And I said, well, well it's much smaller before you asked me that question. <laughs> but um, I, I just didn't take it off. I wore the hat swimming. I wore it shopping. I wore it jogging along Cronulla Beach. And the other night, my three sisters came down and had an intervention. Well, two of them held me down and the other one got the hat off my head and said, <laughs> enough already, you know. But it was really, really exciting. Was it a, a kind of a... Um a moment to reflect and, and acknowledge, I it, guess, what you've done. Yeah, it was. And it was also lovely to talk to the students and sort of give them some advice, especially the girls, because I, as I pointed out to the, to, the, to the whole auditorium, that it's still a man's world and Australian women don't have equal pay. We're getting 75 cents in the dollar. You know, we're getting concussion hitting our head on the glass ceiling and we're supposed to clean it while we're up there. Mm. Uh, I talked about how the sexism is innate in the language, that a, a man who's good at work 
is, you know, dynamic, a go-getter, he's leadership material. And a woman with those same characteristics is pushy, a bitch, ambitious, a ball breaker. Um, so I, I said to the girls that what they've got to let every man know whom they meet along the way, they no longer want his seat on the bus, they want his seat on the board. And but I, and I said to the young men there too that the world is their oyster, you know, they can go out there and devour it, but to share the feast with all the women they meet along the way. And I think it's important to remind them of that, that it's the world, it's not going to be as, as even-handed as it is in university. It's a very sexist world. We've got Donald Trump in the White House, the pussy grabber. You know, in a lot of countries, women's rights are being eroded. So we have to be kind of more vigilant and get back to the barricades and, and be loud and stroppy and proud. And and it's what Sheryl Sandberg said about leaning in. Don't be afraid to hit, let your voice be heard. Because all the research shows that whenever a man and woman start talking at the same time, the woman always pulls back because we're brought up to be good and we're brought up to be nice and we're brought up to pour oil on troubled waters. But, you know, no. You know, claim your space. Don't care what people think about you, which is the really liberating thing of turning 50 is that you care less and less what people think. You get a kind of, oh, fuck it, I'm 50. Yeah, Jean let's go. In, let's <laughs> go for it. And it's, and it's really liberating for women. And also with menopause, your estrogen goes down and your testosterone comes up a little bit. So you get a little bit more selfish, you get a little bit more stroppy, you get a little bit, well, you act a little bit more like a bloke, actually. That's what they're always like. So it's, you know, there's a positive side to the menopause too. <laughs> get to, get your stroppy on. Yeah, yeah. get your stro- <laughs> strap on your stroppy. Strap That's on right. your stroppy, I like Because <laughs> it. it is, and you really have been at the forefront of a lot of, you know, that kind of contemporary feminist yeah. voice and mm. language. What do you think we need to keep fighting for? Well, it's so extraordinary that we don't have equal pay. And I've been saying the same things as a feminist since I was a late teenager. Um, I think the only way it's going to change is for men to get to the barricades with us. You know, they, every Australian man should be hanging his head in shame that Australian women don't have equal pay. If it was Muslim men or black men would not give, be given given the same pay as white men. It would be a national scandal. But the fact that it's women and people just wear it is outrageous. You know, we should be down there throwing tampons at at government house until they they do something about it. I mean, in Iceland, the women were so exercised by the fact that they didn't have equal pay that they called a national strike. And every single woman went on strike that day. Mothers didn't take their kids to, to school you know, nobody went to work. The whole country kind of ground to a, a, a standstill. They got equal pay the next day. So, it can you know, be we, that easy, we just need to be more stroppy and more radical. We make up over half of the population. So, yeah, just get more stroppy. And men always say to me, oh, you know, you feminist, you're asking for so much. But what? We're not. What do we want? We want equal pay. We want men to help us around the house occasionally, you know, because even though women make up 50% of the workforce, we're still doing like 99.9% of all the housework yeah. and all the childcare. Yeah. And I always say to men, it's in your interest to help us more because it's scientifically proven that no woman ever shot her husband while he was vacuuming. Hello? Never. 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 <laughs> you know, we want a man to talk to us occasionally because I sometimes feel my small intestine communicates with me more often than my husband. <laughs> and we want you to... Um, 
know that the Kama Sutra is not an Indian takeaway, you know, and that Mutual <laughs> Orgasm is not an insurance company. I don't think that's a lot. No, not asking no, for a lot. No, world peace will follow once. Yeah, that exactly. Happens. That's right. Well, talking about that, I think they should. The men have so ruined the world. Why don't we just? You know how you give um, a guest editor a chance to run the magazine. You have like a celebrity editor or something. Let's let's just let's let women have a guest edit of the Globe. Let them yeah. just run the world for a month and see what we can solve. We can't do a worse jo- job than the blokes. No, no, we're so, starting at a very low bar. So that's let's right, low bar. Have a crack and I get think it's a go. great idea. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And I love the idea of, you know, you say just keep adding our voice and keep, um, mm-hmm. you know, expressing our voice despite everything we've been told is that shut up, be quiet, yeah. sit back in the corner. Has there been any times where you've noticed yourself sitting back and you've almost pulled yourself up and gone, Oh my gosh, that's that's been me, and I now need to express my voice in that. Um, well, I think growing up as a surfy girl in Cronulla, where the men were so sexist, it was a big learning curve for me. Women were little more than a life support system to a pair of breasts, and after that ordeal, you know, women were called we our, our, they were all either called bush pigs or swamp hogs or maggots. If you were good looking, they called you a glamour maggot. The terms for sex were rooting, tooling, plugging, stabbing, poking and meat injecting. It's not exactly a Shakespearean love sonnet. Having survived that and then also been working in the Australian media when I was in my late teens and early 20s, which was full of Neanderthals. Uh, For example, my very first um, job interview in television, I already had a book out and a column out. But I went for this job interview and it was all men sitting around the table. And one of them, the, I can't probably say who it is because you all know him, but I might get sued. Oh, it's true. He slapped $10 down on the table and said, I bet I can make your tits move without touching them. And I'm 20 years old and I go, oh, well, okay, you know. He leans over, mauls my breasts and then says, ha, 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 there you are, you won and gave me the $10. Mm. But not being green, straight away, I said, I bet you 20 bucks I can make your balls move without touching him and kicked him between the legs. So he's rolling around in agony. The other men are killing themselves laughing. I got the job, but what what an initiation. I mean, today you'd have a sexual harassment suit, but then we just had to wear that sexism. We just had to learn to cope with it. So it did teach you to be a bit of a barroom brawler and stick up for yourself. And I think it's a reminder for all of us that it's horrendous and we've, like, that's the potential of us falling back to if we don't raise our voice. Yes, if and we if we don't, don't if we don't, you know, fight for what we've achieved and not let it slip away. That's right. Absolutely. The reminders of so, that. So, yeah. And, and the other thing you've always got to remember is that nobody can make you feel inferior unless you let them. And whenever I give talks in schools, which I do often, I talk to young women, I always say to them, okay, you know, men are more uh, physically stronger, of course, but women are more verbally dexterous. We use in our vocabulary about 350 more words a day than the average male. So we can shoot from the lip. I call it the black belt in Tung Fu. You can always fire off a withering one-liner that can put a man in his place. And if, not a man, I mean a misogynist. And 
if um, you can make people laugh at a bully, you take away their power. So I always say to girls, you know, you go out looking fabulous all dressed up, but you're underdressed unless you've got a couple of good one-liners tucked up your trouser leg that you can fire off, shoot from the lip, give a man quiplash and make him the the um, the make him the sort of centre of derision and then he has no power. The power changes. The power changes. Laughter and humour. And, of course, women, humour is a defence mechanism for us, which is why all my books are funny because I think that's how women relate to each other. I think male and female humour is very different. For, for men, their humour, I mean, I have so many male friends who are hilarious, but they, tell to, they tend to tell set jokes Whereas when we get together, women, our humour's anecdotal, cathartic, confessional. We tend to strip off to our emotional underwear and it's a psychological striptease that reveals all. And it's very honest and candid and it's how we bond. Um, and, and I think that the way we use humour is, is almost like strapping a giant shock absorber to your brain. And scientists say we know that laughter it comes from the oldest part of the brain. We Biologists tell us that it's... Um, that laughing is physical is good for your physical and mental health, but anthropologists tell us that um, in every culture in the world, women laugh more than men, especially when they're in all female groups. And you know what they're laughing about? Men mostly. <laughs> and the fact, the targets in yeah, <laughs> and the fact that we're the butt of God's biological joke. You know, you think of all the things women go through, from when they. Um, First of all, when they get, you get your periods and you're taken hostage by your hormones once a month and then you've got uh, the whole pregnancy and then the whole childbirth where you stretch your vagina, the customary five kilometres, then you've got mastitis, then you've got the menopause and then just when everything goes quiet, I hate to tell you, do you know what happens? You grow a beard. Oh. <laughs> How can that be fair? It's not fair at it's all. It's so not fair. <laughs> so, you know, it's a case of laugh or cry. And, yeah. and also I always, my motto is laugh and the world laughs with you, cry and you get salt in your martini. So just keep <laughs> laughing, girls. Keep laughing. There is that connection that comes together. And I love, as you say, there's, there's power in the words that we use. And for you, I guess everything from having written Puberty Blues to your latest book, which is Best Laid Plants, mm-hmm. which is what you're out here in Australia for, um, you know, words have very much been the tool of your mm. your trade. Mm-hmm. Have Is, is literary, literacy and, and writing always, is that an outlet for you to oh, discover gorgeous. the world? Oh, I only write because it's cheaper than therapy. Yeah. I also <laughs> always write the book I wish I'd had when I was going through something. I mean, I have three sensational sisters, warm, witty, wise, wonderful, and we're so close. And also my mother's a feminist. She was actually, the, and in, in my classes at school, she was the only mother who worked. Um, so she was a very good role model for us. But I firmly believe that women are each other's human wonder bras, uplifting, supportive and making each other look bigger and better. But growing up um, as a surfy girl, I think the reason I developed um, a way with words is that those girls I grew up with were so physically perfect. I mean, they kind of proved that Barbie and Ken dolls actually had sex because this is the this is the byproduct, this is the progeny. The girls had the long blonde hair. They had the breasts that arrived about five minutes before they did. They had the long brown legs, you know, the perfectly proportioned body. And there I was, a bonsai brunette whose bra cups do not runneth over. 
So for me, it was a case of, you know, I had to develop something else so I'd never get noticed. You know, the, I was joked that the Pope would be ringing me up for tips on celibacy if I hadn't developed something else. Yeah. So that's, I think, where I started my um, love of wordplay and language and, and, and all of that. And as I said, it is just a great weapon in the female armoury that we do have this um, facility for language. Are there other places that you write? And what I mean is like there's writing for your job and writing for the next novel and the next book that's coming out, but do you also write in other streams of like journaling or just for your own, um, yeah, I guess, exploration of what's happening? Yeah, oh, no, I, I do. I write all the time. In fact, I think with my fingertips. If I, I think, that, you know, I'm so used to working on the keyboard. That's where I do my best thinking. <laughs> I often write, I do write longhand with the biro still sometimes because I just love the, the tactile yeah. feel of it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, I will write until the, the day I die. It's just, to me, it's as natural as breathing. And I also really do like to be able to pass on the hard-won knowledge I've gleaned to the next um, wave of, of women coming behind me. And I've always done that. Like when I first wrote, uh, when I wrote about, okay, after I wrote Beauty Blues, then I wrote a book called Girls' Night Out about being a single girl in Sydney uh, and I, I always joke that it's about trying to find a man who wasn't married or gay or married and gay or who didn't think monogamy was something you make dining room tables out of. But it was also a book about the fact, the sexism, that we were talking about the sexism that's innate in the language when it comes to the workplace, but there's also this sexism that's innate in the language when it comes to sexuality uh, because all the men I knew, and it's still the case today, who were sexually... Um, had a sexually voracious appetite, were described as stud muffins and spunk rats and Lotharios and Romeos and love gods. But women with exactly the same sexual appetites are described as sluts, tarts, tramps, moles, skanks. You know, it's like how guys expect you to be so virginal. It's like when the man says to you, oh, darling, darling, am I the first man to make love to you? To which the woman replies, of course. I don't know why you men keep asking the same silly question. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there are all these books I write for the, for as kind of handbooks, survival guides. Then when I was pregnant and the whole horrors of being pregnant and, and the childbirth. No one talked about the truth of child. Everyone was so earth-mothery then. And those books that I wrote were the first novels I know of that told the truth about what happens to you in the birthing room and also that, you know, how Stone Age it is, how prehistoric it is um, and that natural childbirth is not a great idea. I mean, you know... Natural childbirth is a case of stiff upper labia. You've done drugs all your life. Why stop now? (laughs) And also mad cows, which took the idea that motherhood is the ultimate fulfilment for a female, took that sacred cow and whacked it on the barbecue. And there's that spurned a whole genre. Now there's mummy lit. But the time I wrote those books, there was nothing talking about that. And and I was trying to analyse it one day and I thought, you know what, all those female literary lionesses well, that's a tautology. All those literary lionesses we love uh, from Edith Sitwell, Germaine Greer, uh, the Brontes, Jane Austen, Simone de Beauvoir, Gertrude Stein, I mean the whole list of them, none of them had babies because books and babies did not go together. If you wanted to be an independent, strong, creative woman, you, they're, they're just 
they just didn't have children. True. So, so yeah. you can't express in birth. So I couldn't, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't find anything in literature that, to reflect what I was going through. So I wrote those books to fill that gap. Then I wrote, you know, I've written Nip and Tuck, which is about a satire on, on what I call facial prejudice, the way women get judged on their looks in a way that men don't. Uh, you know, I always think, you know, I don't do the whole Botox thing. I think men should just read between my lines. You know, it's all there. <laughs> um, I've written about raising teenage daughter, I've, which is like living with the Taliban. I'm telling you, you can't laugh seeing dance or wear short skirts. Oh, it's my, terrible. So my daughter is seven and I'm like an expert on teenagers because I don't have any yet. <laughs> well, you enjoy her now because she Aww. will go feral for a while. Uh, I've written a lot about marriage, honestly about marriage and 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 housework and trying to juggle kids and career and all that stuff. And I think all my books have been slightly ahead of their time. Um, I'm never quite on the zeitgeist. I'm sort of always a little bit slightly in front. (laughs) But I know that they help other women because especially when I'm on tour, women bring bags of books to me. They've got every book I've ever written and they're like, oh, this helped me through my divorce or this helped me through childbirth. And I'm like, that is so gratifying for me. That's why I wrote them. And and that's the lovely thing about being on tour. It's exhausting because you're hemorrhaging charisma, but it's also incredibly rewarding because you meet your readers and they're so lovely and they they give back so much to me. It's been really lovely, this trip. And I imagine the connective power of the books add to the conversation because women don't just read alone, especially if something that is heartfelt. We yeah. share it with our friends. That's we we right. pass on the books. We get book clubs together. That's right. The exactly. conversations really happen. And I think, you know, this new one, Best Laid Plans, the other reason I'm, uh, I'm pleased it's out now is that we desperately need a laugh. And all the book clubs that my sisters are in and my mum's in and everything, it's all misery lit. It's all, you know, child abuse and alcoholism and all those things are important to address, but also the life-affirming joy of laughter. <laughs> you know, we need, we need books that also um, lift you up and lift your spirits and give you that survival mechanism of laughter that we were talking about earlier. So I think, you know, it's a bit of proving a bit of a tonic right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I want to talk about the book in a sec, but I guess what comes to mind for me, how do you find those moments of, of laughter when you might be going through, oh, you know, where's the world at? What's going on for me? Like you might be having a bit of a crap day. What helps you like is there a, a trigger or something that you do or something that gets you back into finding humor again well i if i'm having a bad day like that i ring my girlfriends my human wonder bras we meet at the bar and we mainline a few martinis <laughs> and we do feel instantly better but you know when i i didn't the time in my life that was the hardest actually was when i uh, my son was diagnosed with autism and of course I didn't speak about it in public till he was 21 because I didn't want to invade his privacy but there were a lot of dark times then and the joy and the um, relief of coming out about that when he was 21 was that people would finally understand why sometimes they would see me swinging off a chandelier somewhere with a glass of alcohol in one hand and toy boy in the other because I just had to let off steam so it was a great relief for me to talk about that finally yeah, because Best Laid Plans, it's a, it's a beautiful book and Thank I've you. had such a joy to, to read it. Oh, and I'm so 
touch that you said that. Thank yeah, you. and then look, there's such um, such humour in it. And so it's a story about um, a mum going through, you know, with a son with autism who's mm-hmm. discovering sex and love and women and life and I guess really yeah. talking about all of us having special needs around sex, really. Well, hello. <laughs> yes, we won't talk about it on the podcast. No. But when it comes to <laughs> it's a whole other sex, podcast. we all have special needs. Yeah. Exactly. And um, it's such a beautiful cocktail of of love and longing, I think, in in Mm. a lot of ways. Mm. Um, And whilst it is a novel, you can see a very close tie Mm. to your own experience, as you say, with your your son, with Jules. Well, I definitely wrote it from the heart. I just put the pen in in the heart and wrote it down but it, as you say it's it's a novel it's not a documentary so i my son of course inspired it but it, i've drawn on all the experiences of all my friends in the autistic community and i have a lot of mums going through the same thing so let me just explain for anyone listening if you don't know what autism is it's a lifelong neurological condition its chief characteristics are an inability to communicate and socialize often chronic OCD and anxiety, but also often a really high IQ. I mean, my own son is like Wikipedia with a pulse. He's so smart. And yet, you know, the whole time they're at school, they're told they're wrong, they're stupid, they're out of sync. And then when it comes to the dating years, even though they're so interesting and they're so tangential and lateral and literal is their logic and they're so original, to girls their own age, they're just too exotic. He might as well be a sherbet-winged flamingo flying down the high street. So for years and years, it's endless, endless rejection until, you know, their their self-esteem is so limbo low. It's like lower than Kim Kardashian's bikini line, which is, you know, quite low. Yeah. Um, and to be perfectly honest, just before my son's 21st birthday, he was so full of angst. Mum, will I ever know what it's like to kiss a girl? Will I ever know what it's like to be loved? Will I ever have a girlfriend? You know, my heart was breaking that I seriously considered hiring him a prostitute. And as a feminist, that's that's a kind of odd thing to say. But, um, you know, I was so desperate to put him out of his misery and his... Um, and ease his anxiety. Luckily, you know, just before his 21st birthday, he he met a girl, he fell in love, and nature took its course. But a couple of weeks later, I read about an Englishman, a father of an autistic boy, who was arrested when he was curb crawling to pick up a prostitute for his autistic son. And I thought, oh, my God, that could have been me. And I thought, wow, that's the beginning of a novel, to take a middle-aged, middle-aged middle-class, law-abiding mum and put her in that scenario and then build the comic chaos around that. Uh, and also it meant I could address this issue that nobody talks about. It's a taboo subject. And it's very rare as a writer to come across, stumble across a topic that hasn't been written about before. But once again, I couldn't find anything in literature that reflected that. But I hasten to add, it's not just a book for people with teenagers on the spectrum because every single parent goes through the most extraordinary emotional turmoil when their teenagers start dating and becoming sexual. Uh, Because, of course, we all, my generation, we all left home to have sex. But now, you know, we allow our children to have sex at home and they do everything at home, which is why they never leave home. But, you know, it can be incredibly confronting. I was talking to a, a guy today who said his son, neurotypical son, you know, started, he was 18 and he was dating a 38-year-old woman. 
and and at breakfast time she'd come out of the bedroom wearing Levi's and Converse trainers. It's exactly what the father was wearing. Right. <laughs> and they'd both sit there and read the newspaper. And and he was saying, thinking of this woman, have you got no no self respect? Can't can't you even make him tidy the bedroom? You know. <laughs> so I think all parents go through this. So it's yeah. striking a nerve with all parents, especially mums. But you know, if you have a kid with autism who's on the spectrum, you know, you turn up the angstometer like 100 million percent. But it's also very funny because people with autism have no filter and they say whatever they're thinking. So I always joke that that means socially I sweat more than Donald Trump doing a Sudoku. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, you know, there is a lot of comedy because he, t- my son, for example, tells me everything that's happening to him. Like way more know it than not. any mother should ever know. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, paging Dr. Freud to reception. <laughs> but my other female friends who have neurotypical sons, they, they're kind of jealous of our relationship because it's very emotionally intimate. I mean, once boys turn 13, they develop that three-grunt vocabulary of nah, don't know, and bleh. And they stop talking to their mothers. But Jules and I are so close that, that they say, oh, I'm really jealous of that. So, you know, there is an upside to autism that nobody ever talks about. And we also know with diagnostic hindsight that Mozart and Orwell and, and Einstein and Van Gogh and Steve Jobs and all these amazing scientists and mathematicians were on the autistic spectrum. So with the right help, they can give back to society in the most interesting ways. Uh, but I was thinking, when I was writing the book, you know, there's that section in the book where she says she's trying to think how she can get her son laid, you know, best laid plans. And she's thinking, who are the most sexually voracious people on the planet? And she thinks priapic autistic boys and women in their 50s post-divorce taking HRT who want to have their last hormonal hurrah. And I was like, why can't we put get these the two, two groups together? together? Yeah. Because, you know, boys is totally un- – autistic boys are so lacking – then there's, they're not judgmental about age. They take everything at, at a, f- a sort of face value, whether you've got wrinkles on your face or not. If someone's witty and amusing and warm, they 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 think they're gorgeous, no matter how old they are. So I was like, let's let's write to Mark Zuckerberg and get an app, develop an app for autistic boys and and fifty year old menopausal post-divorce women, we could call it like or Tinder or Tinderism. I was thinking, uh, what about square pegs for round holes or something like that? It's going to take off. I think it will. Yeah, my gosh, yes. Yeah, so some cathartic um, writing through your own experience and and understanding. um, And I understand Jules is, is working. Well, that's the other thing I would say to anyone listening who has a child on the spectrum because it can be very dark time when you get the diagnosis, you know, I felt as though my son had been had become a, a plant in a gloomy room and it was my job to drag him into the light. You go through various phases, like the first phase you go through is denial. You bankrupt yourself seeing every medical expert in the country. I hate to think how many doctors' children I've put through university now. <laughs> and then you, your guilt gland throbs terribly. You think, was it something I ate? Was it something I drank? Was it that one glass of wine in the final trimester. You know, if only I'd feng shuied my aura <laughs> like Gwyneth Paltrow and co, it would all be okay. And then eventually you start to think, well, this is just the unique little person I've been given and I've just got to do my best by them. And what Jules has taught me is there's no such thing as normal and abnormal. There's ordinary and extraordinary. But all autistic people need is a chance to shine. So my two top tips are tell them how wonderful they are because they need to build up their self-esteem. 
but also whatever they're obsessed with, whatever their obsession is, feed it. Whether it's igneous rock formations or, you know, the, the moth fluctuations of, of, of wingspans in the Amazon, whatever it is. Now, my own son wanted to be an actor and I was like, how can an autistic person act? Because you need to emote, you need to um, understand nuance, etc. Um, but, you know, I fed the obsession. I, I booked him in for a year-long acting foundation course and I'd go and watch him and I'd be watching him and I'd be thinking, you're really good. Then I thought, oh, no, 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 it's the mum goggles. <laughs> I've got the mum filter on, you know, the prism, seeing everything through the prism of love. But then he won some awards, then he got an agent and then the agent sent him for a casting audition um, for the BBC and he won this part in a program called Holby City, which is a long-running medical drama. Uh, He's been in in it for a year and a half. It's the first time they've cast an autistic character, an autistic autistic actor to play an autistic character because normally they get Rain Man to pretend, you know, Dustin Hoffman pretends to be Rain Man or whatever. So it's been groundbreaking. And audiences love him. The, the the rest of the cast love him. And all the cast have come up for the Royal Shakespeare Company. It's Gemma Redgrave and Catherine Russell. And they love him because he's so enthusiastic. And he makes them act in a different way. Um, so he's put the artistic into autistic. And now he's watched by six million people a week. He's got a fan base. You know, people What's push that me. Like? Well, people push me out of the way <laughs> to get a, an, an autograph from him. And I think back to when he was at school. And he came home when he was about nine with a sign on his back saying, kick me, I'm a retard. And he's got tears in his eyes. He's saying to me, mum, the kids are calling me a retard. What is a retard? I mean, you might as well have taken my heart out of my chest, ripped it out and just thrown it on the ground and stomped on it. Oh. But now when I see how successful he is and how well he's doing, I do allow myself the odd moment of light gloating and I think back to those bullies and I think I hope you see him now and realise how small-minded you were. So, yeah, so the, the, the moral of the story is you never know where their unusual talents will take them. So never, ever give up hope. But, you know, keep drinking. You will need to drink a yeah. lot of alcohol as well. Yeah. <laughs> Tell them you love them, feed their habits and go and get some good friends around. And go with martinis. your girlfriends. Get your human wonder bras and mainline martinis, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on a regular basis. Amazing journey. So you, um, you rub shoulders with some pretty successful people, people, you know, Kylie Minogue, and people just, you know, yeah. pop over for, mm. for lunches and, and teas <laughs> and coffees. Who would you describe as being successful and why? Oh, gosh. Isn't success just, I mean, it sounds so cliched, but it's to love and be loved. To me, mm. that's the ultimate success. But also, if you can fulfil your intellectual and your creative passions as well, if you find a job that you, that you adore that you're happy to you run to the office in the morning, then that to me is the ultimate success. And also being able to juggle kids and career without dropping everything. I mean, my, working mothers juggle so much we could be in the Moscow State Circus. And we do drop things all the time. And dropping things doesn't mean that you're a failure. It just means you just pick them up and start again. So, um, yeah, I think success is... It's really that just to follow your your heart. I mean, of course, as I just got my honorary doctorate, it's important to have to surf your brain waves. I say that as an old surfy girl. Yeah. Yes, surf your brain waves, but also be true to yourself and follow your heart. And and in England, when I when I first got to England, people were so condescending to me uh, because my husband was going out with Nigella Lawson at the time, and so all the gossip columns were like. 
how, you know, he broke up with her for me uh, and I can't cook. I use my smoke alarm as a timer. <laughs> I hasten to add. But all the gossip columns were like, how could good-looking, gorgeous, handsome, QC, break up with beautiful, gorgeous, uh, daughter of the Chancellor of the Exchequer and domestic goddess for loudmouth colonial nymphomaniac? And I was like, how dare they call me a loudmouth, please? You know, I have my standards. <laughs> but I stayed true to myself. I didn't change for them. And I think that's a really important lesson to learn in life too is that don't be intimidated by people. Be true to yourself and follow your own path because in the end it will lead you to the most interesting places. And you never want to regret. You never want to think, I should have taken that risk. I should have taken that turn. I should have, ta- I should have, tr- I should have trusted my instincts. So I think that's really important for women because we are quite instinctive, you know, is to just not be good all the time, just be a bit bad and walk on the wild side occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> is there one or two things that help you get back to that? Because I know, again, even amongst the busyness and you're out here in Australia doing a crazy, a crazy, yeah. crazy couple of weeks, um, Amongst in the middle of the busyness, which is amazing and awesome and hard, what helps you still be connected to who you are? Well, my sisters, I mean, they would just slap me down if ever I got elephantiasis of the <laughs> ego or anything like that. Uh, and also my, you know, having an aut- a son with special needs is very grounding because it doesn't matter how much money you've got or it doesn't matter how who you know, it's still autism and I deal with him. He's... Uh, problems and I'm his carer and his psychological counsellor and everything. And that's pretty much a full-time job as well. And he's wonderful, don't get me wrong, Mm. but of course he's so angst-ridden about being different. So that's pretty much a full-time job and that keeps you completely down to earth. Uh, And I suppose all the charity work I do, I do a lot of charity work for women's causes. I'm an ambassador for Plan International. I'm an ambassador for the White Ribbon Alliance. That's to do with maternal health because in the developing world, one woman dies every three minutes in childbirth. Uh, I'm an ambassador for the National Autistic Society and ambitious about autism. And I think helping people who need your help is 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 also incredibly grounding. You know, if, if I'm if I'm angsting over a bad review I got or whatever, compared to, you know, going to Brazil and going to the slums and seeing how the the women suffer there, you know, that'll put you straight back yeah, in your yeah. box. <laughs> I can <laughs> so deal I with that review. That's a good balance we should all get is to doing do, you know, giving back as much as we can, especially to our sisters in in the developing world who are so downtrodden. I mean, in the developing world, women are fed last, they're fed least, they're taken out of school, you know, they don't get any education. I mean, Plan International is about education, um, contraception, nutrition. They're probably the three main things and, um, yeah, and and helping them just stay at school. If you can keep a girl at school, you can, you know, raise the living standard of, of her of the whole community. So it's it's makes economic sense, but it's it's all it's just a lot to do with contraception because of course if a girl gets when she gets pregnant, school. she's a runner up in the human race, mm. you know, because then you know the, the 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 what do you call someone who uses the rhythm method, mum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so charity work I think is really important as well. Coming back to that, yeah. So the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. If I offer that term up to you, what's it mean to you to live a standout life? Standout life. Well, as I said, be true to yourself and be loud and proud and bold and brilliant and never think that a man has something more important to say than you do. 
And I was just in New York for the the Tina Brown um, Women in the World Summit, which was extraordinary. You know, Hillary Clinton gave her first interview. Just, Justin Trudeau came and spoke about how he made 50% of his cabinet female. It was really, you know, I, it's an overused word, but it was really empowering. Um, and there was, I had the editor of Teen Vogue on the program because, on my panel. Uh, I was hosting a panel and she was talking about uh, a journalist she employed to write a piece about how Trump was gas lighting America. Do you know the Gaslighting, the famous film? No. Oh, see, it's a famous, famous classic film about a man who convinces his wife she's mad and, and, and you know, and, and, tell, and sort of plants, says that she's stealing things and she's okay. a kleptomaniac and undermines her confidence and makes her doubt herself. And this journalist wrote a piece saying how Trump was gaslighting America and he was making us doubt out our own instincts and 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 think we you know and think we were being lied to and making us paranoid. And she was on Fox News talking to a guy called Tucker Carlson, and he just talked over the top of her. It was on Fox News. So everything this young journalist said, he just bombarded her with how stupid she is and shouldn't girls who read Vogue magazine only be interested in thigh-high boots and hot pants? And he was just so snide and so condescending and so vile. And she did the only thing you can do at that time is keep talking. She just kept talking so she didn't look intimidated. So they were both talking. It was like stereophonic you know, diatribes, but she wouldn't be bullied. And so I think just don't let men bully you in life. You know, just just claim your space. I always say my top tips for girls are never wait to be rescued by a knight in shining Armani and stand on your own two stilettos. Amen, Dr. Lett. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.